Derek and I were joking in the foyer this, this morning, right? Ready or not, Christmas is upon us. Uh, and it's this thing we talk about every year, right? There's celebration and joy and lots of pressure and stress to get it all right. And I pray that as we've gathered here on this Christmas Eve that we can turn to Luke chapter 1, meditate on Zechariah's prayer uh, where he blesses God, uh, and our hearts will be moved to bless, praise, and adore the Lord for what he has done for us in Christ. So we're in Luke chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 67, verses 67 through 79, record for us uh, the second Christmas song that Luke records in his gospel. We're working through, meditating through those this Christmas season. So last week we looked at Mary's song called the Magnificat in Latin. All these songs um, have Latin, fancy Latin names. So the Magnificat last week. Uh, Mary's song, <clears throat> when John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy and Mary was er erupted in praise at what God had done for her. Uh, today we come to Zechariah's prayer. Zechariah is John the Baptist's father who... Uh, fumbled the ball badly when Gabriel showed up and announced that they would have a baby, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth, we know from the early chapters, early in Luke 1, were beyond the uh, childbearing age, which if you know your Old Testament is no problem for God. Uh, and yet when Gabriel shows up and says, your prayers have been heard, you'll have a child, this child will be the forerunner of the Messiah. Gabriel, I mean, Zechariah says, uh, prove it. And Zechariah says, all right, be quiet. I mean, Gabriel says, all right, be quiet, and Zechariah was, right? Uh, divinely imposed silence until the birth of his son when they named him John. <clears throat> and I don't know if this is exactly the first words that Zechariah said. Luke doesn't say these are the very next things he said when John was born and they named him John. But it's the first words we get recorded that Zechariah spoke from the announcement of Gabriel until the birth of his son. A long-awaited son, uh, a, a son that he and Elizabeth, by evidence of the first chapter, the, first, the early chapter of God, Oh my gosh, the early verses of Luke 1 uh, had been praying for for a long time, right? A long-awaited son. And Zechariah erupts in praise. And what's shocking to me uh, about this praise is how little of it involves John. So let's read together uh, Luke 1, 67 through 79. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. This is Zechariah prophesied, be filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, and you maybe can tell uh, all about Jesus. <laughs> Here's my long-awaited son. Let's talk about Jesus. Uh, and so I think that's the main thing I hope that we, the Lord does for us this week, is that we remind us that God sent his son as our Savior, and we should never stop praising him for it. God sent his son as our Savior, and we should never stop praising him for it, the best of gifts that he can give us in any other way 
should all point us to the greatest gift, which was Jesus Christ himself, our Savior and Lord. So we're going to meditate through Zechariah's prophecy uh, in three movements, three headings. Uh, First, we'll praise God for the promised Savior. That's where Zechariah starts. Praise God for the promised Savior. Uh, then secondly, praise God for, his, for our fearless service. Because God has sent a Savior, we can serve him fearlessly. Uh, and then thirdly, for the mercy that makes it all possible. So we want to praise God. We want our hearts to be moved with eternal, like never-ending praise for God. Blessing to his name, adoration and worship to him. Because he has sent the promised Savior so that we could serve him fearlessly. All because of his mercy that makes it possible. So uh, let's, let's start. Praise God first for our promised Savior. So we move to praise God for our promised Savior. Blessed be the Lord God. And that, that means we, we usually think blessing is like giving good things to people or saying, saying good things. We don't really give good things to God. We just give the praise back to him. So when the prayer in the Bibles go up to bless, bless God, it means give praise back. He's done all of his marvelous things for us. He needs nothing from us. We haven't bribed him into doing anything. He's just been good, good to us. And so we, we praise him back. Praise be, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. Like Mary, we saw last week, Zechariah's first thought, first words, praise God, because he's shown up, he's paid attention. Mary said, right, he has, he's looked on my humble estate, Zechariah says he has visited his people. Uh, and this is not like a Christmas visitor that shows up and then leaves. Uh, when God visits, he shows up to act. He shows up to, to do things. Uh, like Ruth and Naomi, if you know the story of Ruth, when they return to Bethlehem because they hear there's food in the land again, they had fled because of the famine, the famine's over, uh, Ruth tells us it's because God visited his people. When Hannah erupts in her song of praise before God in First uh, Samuel, it's because she conceived a child because God visited her. He showed up, he took notice, and he, he acted on her behalf. And, and the big one, the first one, uh, that seems to shape Zechariah's prayer here is Genesis 50. When Joseph is near the end of his life, and Israel is in Egypt, and he knows they won't stay there forever, that God will come, and that God will rescue them from Egypt and take them back to the land, he, he promises that, that they will return to Israel because God will visit them. He will visit them and redeem them. Same, same word Zechariah has in verse 68. He has visited, he shows up, and, and saves and rescues. What God is doing, has done in Jesus is the fulfillment and an echo of everything he did in the Exodus. That's what Zechariah has in mind, is what God did in the Exodus, to rescue a people and save them from slavery and bring them to freedom so they can be restored to him. And what he did in Egypt, Zechariah says he is doing again in Jesus. He brings salvation. He shows up and redeems. In verse 71, we We see that salvation comes uh, from enemies, that we should be saved from our enemies in the hand or the power, hand is a biblical image for power, the power of all who hate us. So Zechariah is not yet talking about escape from eternal judgment. He seems to be thinking primarily about the hostility and the opposition that Israel was experiencing under Roman rule. They were an oppressed, conquered people. Hostility and opposition, opposition, opposition regularly experienced experience 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 regularly. 
for the nations, the nations around them, or wicked forces from within them. Over the course of Israel's national history, they were regularly opposed. The worship of God was constantly threatened by ruling authorities and powers and armies. And Christians have found ourselves with similar hopes for two millennia. That God would come and rescue us. You read the book of Acts, the gospel from the very beginning is opposed by ruling authorities, is opposed by cultural pressures, is opposed by social shame. Judean Christians will be impoverished in a famine because nobody in Judah and in Jerusalem will give them work because they, they love Jesus. Roman authorities will oppose them for not uh, pinching, uh, burning incense and praying to Caesar as their ultimate Lord. There are religious systems that want Christianity eradicated. There are governments that want no allegiance beyond them, and so they hate that we claim Jesus is our Lord. We know that that's happening around the world for many of our brothers and sisters. In our place, in our time, there aren't many who are directly opposed to Jesus. Not many enemies who just come straight at the fact that we're Christians, but they are coming for what Jesus commands. Uh, they hate our ethics, and our culture has a lot of social pressure that hates the uniqueness of Jesus. I mean, we've claimed many times today that Christ is coming back, and faith in him is the dividing line between those who trust him and those who don't, those who are welcomed into eternal life and those who will experience eternal judgment. And that idea is opposed at every level of modern society. Uh, in fact, watch Christmas movies, <clears throat> and the one thing modern Christmas movies never do is talk about uh, Jesus. They use the vague sort of Christmas spirit idea, like it's a gas that just permeates, that we breathe in this time of year and just makes us feel better. There, there are airborne intoxicants that do that kind of thing. Uh, Jesus is not one of them. Jesus is a person who took on flesh, who lived a life of obedience to God <clears throat> because he was coming to rescue us from our sins and our enemies. <clears throat> and that kind of exclusivity society does not like. <clears throat> and so whether we feel it in the sort of social pressure that we have or the outright hostility, like our brothers and sisters in Nigeria where they're being killed, <clears throat> that kind of hostility will endure. Because Gerald's right when he talked about the way Malachi talked, all the way back to Cain and Abel as the first instance of the curse that happened in the garden. The, the seed of the serpent, the offspring, uh, the serpent, the deceiver would have offspring, uh, not literal offspring, but those who lived and acted like him. And Eve and the woman, the seed of the woman would have woman would have offspring, and there would be constant battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between those who trust and love God and those who are opposed to him. <clears throat> and that, one, that will endure in, in full until, uh, until Jesus returns. There will always be hostility. It will never be easy to live a faithful life, to just worship and praise and adore God. In all of life, in and out, we will always be fighting enemies. And even if there aren't earthly enemies, there will always be satanic pressures, spiritual enemies, and even our own flesh. Which I don't think Zechariah has in mind, but we know as the New Testament unfolds, as the apostles write about what Jesus has done for us, that when the Spirit uh, comes to reside in us, our own flesh, our own sinful patterns and habits become our enemies that we war against. And Christ has come to save us from them. He is working salvation in the midst of that hostility through that particular person, Jesus, uh, the seed of David. Zechariah calls him a horn of salvation, verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. Some of the commentaries will think, oh, Zechariah got confused and he thought his son had a different background. I, 
commentators say crazy things to not just admit what the Bible says. <laughs> because Zechariah's not talking about his own son. That's what you would expect, right? Long-awaited son. Here he's finally born. Let's talk about and praise God for him. But he's not. He's praising God for David's descendant, who he knows is in the world because Mary had visited his house three months before. And John and Elizabeth's womb had leapt for joy, and Mary had related the message from Gabriel and praised God for the Magnificat and Zechariah and his silence of observing and taking all of this in. And so he knows that the horn of salvation is coming into the world, not through his child, but through Elizabeth's relative Mary. A horn of salvation descended from David to reign on David's throne. And that, that image of a horn is the image of ox horns, uh, bull horns, that are uh, the consistent image throughout the Old Testament. When God raises someone horn, someone horn, it means he exalts them and honors them. You might think of a, you know, a, a bull as the pride of his pasture with his head raised in all of his strength. I mean, he's got no challengers out there, and, and the horns are the sign of his strength. That's what he uses to gore his enemies. It's a victorious, mighty king, a horn of salvation. God will give power and honor and strength to this Davidic king to win, to get victory and peace. That's Jesus. He didn't come to sort of tranquilize us into coping through life. He came to bring victory, to conquer the enemies of God, and to bring his people to freedom. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not just getting us through a difficult world until we die, but ruling and conquering. To reestablish the reign of God our Father uh, that was supposed to be exercised through us, lost and now restored in him. And I don't know if Zechariah fully understood what he was saying, what it would take. I suspect he didn't. That's how the prophets all through the Old Testament work. They see the truth, but they don't see it in its fullness. So I, I know we can see it. That when Zechariah says, God has visited us to redeem us by raising a horn of salvation, a descendant of David, I don't think Zechariah had yet put it together that those are the same event. <laughs> that it was God himself who took on flesh. The child Mary carried was not just an earthly descendant of David, but was, in fact, God the Son who took on flesh, who became a man, who dwelt among us, remaining fully and truly God, nevertheless took to himself full and true humanity. And so without changing what God had been for eternity past and will be for eternity future, he, he took on true humanity at a moment in history to come and be among us, to take up residence among us in our humanity to save us, which means everything's, I mean, everything's changed. God had visited multiple times, right, over and over in the course of Israel's history. God had shown up. God had acted in world history. God had worked in a people uh, and through this people and then in the nations around them. But God had not walked among us as one of us, and yet he has now. And so the question is, uh, which is the reason why it, exclusivity is just obviously true once you believe what has happened. Because no other person, no other teacher, no other guru, uh, no other religious figure is God himself in the flesh. There is none other we can look to but Jesus. And the question, right, faces all of us is how we respond to this visitation. How do we respond to this visitor? Will we reject him like his people largely did? Will we say, hey, thanks, but no? <clears throat> or will you welcome him and bless him? Bless God for him like Zechariah did. Will you receive him? Praise God for him. 
Beloved, if you, you know this forgiveness of your sins, if, if you know the depth of what God rescued you from, your heart just can't really get away from that. Even in our griefs and our, our sorrows and the painful difficulties and the kind of things Malachi sees in Malachi 3 when he then prophesies the coming of John, <clears throat> even people close to the Lord see struggle with it's vanity to serve him why are we doing this the wicked prosper the righteous suffer what is this all for even in that if you know that god has sent christ for you even as those struggles and confusions you have something in your heart that is just ready wants to praise god again wants to be renewed in that and that even that in the midst of grief and sorrow that itself is evidence that god is working to bring you the salvation that he promises here praise god promised Savior, that he has visited us to save us. And when you welcomed him, when we welcomed him, when he showed up, when you put your trust in him, did you welcome him so that he would act? Did you welcome him because you knew he would come and rule? That's Zechariah's point. Praise God for the Savior because he has come to save, to restore, not just to, to free us from what hinders us, but to show us how we ought to live, to serve him fearlessly. So that's the second thing. Zechariah moves from what God has done to visit to then what's the purpose of that? As we praise God for our fearless service. And we can serve God all of our days. You see that in verse 72 and 73. He's sent this salvation in verse 71 to to fulfill the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember the holy covenant. It's looking in, the, looking in the past. We're going to come back to that. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, here's how he's fulfilling Abraham's oath, verse 74, that we, being delivered from our enemies, there's our Savior, might serve him without fear. When Zechariah thinks salvation and rescue and freedom, Zechariah does not think like an American. <laughs> he does not think freedom from constraints to finally do whatever I want. He thinks freedom from the enemies so I can serve God the way I should. So we can serve God the way we should. That's what Zechariah is hoping for. Not freedom from restrictions so they can do their own thing. Right? Jesus is not a cosmic enabler. He doesn't come so that we could construct our own identity from whatever we find inside of us so that we can have an attempt to live in authentic to our real self. That's the pressure and burden of modern life. Look in yourself. Figure out who you are, and then find out how you can make everybody else celebrate that so you can live an authentic life and not be at odds with what you find inside. And Jesus did not come to enable that. <clears throat> that's the pressure of modern life. And I, wanna, I do want to say that that sounds really good. When, it, when it's presented in, in, the, in the world, it sounds really good. And it sounds good because it's, it's really close, actually. It's like almost there to what God intends for us. <clears throat> but it's the ways that it's wrong that make it a poisoned well. It offers life, this idea of diving into yourself, finding out who you are, and living truly to that. It offers life, but it's, it's a poisoned well, but it's the kind of poison that kills you slowly. It doesn't show up, obviously, and quickly. Very, it rarely shows up quickly as the deceptive lie that it is. It kills you slowly, but a lifetime of failed expectations and the inability to get reality to conform to what you wish it would be because, you know, facts are stubborn things. They just don't change <clears throat> who God is and what he's done and how he's made the world. We can't mold that. And so the hope in this prophecy is not that you know, they'd be free to 
live their own lives the way they want, but that they could serve God, which is another way to worship, say worship God. Um, Zechariah was a priest. Gabriel showed up when he was doing his priestly duty in the temple. So uh, Zechariah knows what that means to serve God. That's the priestly calling in Leviticus. He set apart the Levites, the priests, uh, for their particular duty to guard and serve the tabernacle and then the temple. That was, that was their whole calling as a, as a tribe, as a people within the nation of Israel, to work and to keep, to guard and protect. You know that already, but it's an echo of Adam's job. What God told the priests to do is an echo of what God made Adam to do in Genesis 2, is to put in the garden to serve it and, and work it, to guard it and serve it, to work it and keep it. And so Zechariah says, we want to serve God without fear. Uh, he knows what he means. He knows his Bible, and he means all of life was meant to be lived that way, to, to move into the world that God made, that he gave to us, and to serve, to work, to guard and keep, grow and make flourish, right? That's, that's what we're made to do. And so humanity was made for, it's especially and specifically what men were made for, what Adam was made for, so that it means to worship God, to serve and honor and live all of life for him. We've done One of the regular laments that I have in my life is the way English words that in the Bible mean really big things, mean such trivial things in modern language, and worship is one of those. We use worship almost exclusively in the modern world to mean music. So you'll hear this sometimes, and people will pitch, like, we'll have some worship, and then we'll have a message, and then we'll have some, a meal after, right? And they mean music. We're going to sing together, and then we're going to have a sermon, and then we're going to have a food. But in the Bible, worship is all of that. It's all that we do to serve God. Hearing his word, responding to his word, feasting and welcoming each other, hospitality together, and the work you do to serve your neighbors Monday through Saturday. The ways you build a household in your homes and around your dinner tables and when you wake up in the morning and you go to bed at night. All of your life, what you study, what you labor for, the things you produce, conversations you have, that is all worship. It all should be worship because it's all service. Service to God, the way he's made us to live, to represent him in the world. Building and growing and teaching and shaping, planning and organizing and feeding and celebrating with all, all participation. It should be. It was made, was made to be all participation, aging, eternally happy, happy, Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We Father, Son, Father, Son, and Spirit have been in community for eternity past. is mirrored, echoed in the way that we were made to live and work together in all the world. That was why God rescued his people from Egypt, not just to get them out of slavery, but to get them into the promised land, to live lives of justice and righteousness and goodness and steadfast, loyal love to God and to each other. That's why he made us and why he is redeeming us. If you know Israel's history, you might resonate with Zechariah because if you think back over the course of the long line from the Exodus until Malachi, how often in Israel's history were they free to serve God without fear? Very little. Maybe for a sliver of time at the end of Joshua's life. And then for a sliver of time at the very end of King David's reign and the beginning of Solomon's. I think that's about it. Um, Psalm, uh, Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22, explicitly say that, that, that David praised God on the day that the Lord delivered him from his hands, from, from the hand of all his enemies. During that sliver of monarchy, from the end of David's reign to the beginning of Solomon's, there was this peace. It was this time when they could just serve 
God. And so, it's not surprising, that's when the fabulous temple was built, when David prepared for the building of the temple and Solomon executed that temple, when in cooperation with the nations around him, even, even doing trading back and forth so that non-Israelite nations were participating in the building of the temple, in this glorious building that would represent the presence of God in the midst of the world. And Zechariah, I think, is looking back, something like that, and saying that's, that's what God wants for us always. So we can just do what God's called us to do without fear, without worry, without the need to be, you know, guarding and protecting. Remember Nehemiah, when he went back to restore Jerusalem's walls, they ended up having to sort of work with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other because there was constant threat from the nations around them. Uh, we feel that today. I, I'm in a couple of pastor email groups where we try to help each other figure things out. And one of the consistent uh, things that come through recently is like, you guys have any good resources for how members of my church uh, can deal with HR regulations about sexuality and gender ethics? <clears throat> I mean, don't you just want to go to work and not worry that if you use the wrong pronoun, you'll get fired? I think, I think we, you just want to show up and do what you're supposed to do. <clears throat> do what you could raise your kids and the instruction of the Lord without this sort of background fear that someone is going to accuse you of brainwashing and abusing your kids because you're teaching them the exclusivity of Jesus. I don't know if that's going to happen here. I mean... I'm sufficiently aware of what's going on in the world that it's a background fear for me. I assume it's a background fear for at least some of you. We just, we just want to teach the truth. We want to talk about God the way it's right. We want to gather and sing his praises and then be able to sing them like in the grocery store line without worrying. Like if I erupt in praise to God here, are people going to, I don't know, can I, can I post something on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or <clears throat> whichever media platform you use without a mob coming for me? Because I just quoted the Bible. I'm just going to serve him without fear. Maybe you have some measure of that freedom in your life. If so, let me encourage you to spend a little bit of time trying to meditate on what a blessing that is. The rarity of that in the scope of human history, Christian history, that you can just do your job and raise your family and love your neighbors explicitly as a Christian without worrying. Praise God for where we see that. And we have a large measure of that in his kindness. Where you, where you don't see that, I want to say that you should be free to lament. That's not the way it should be. And, and not just for yourself, but for others, to praise God and to ask God, would you act, Lord God, so your name can be glorified without fear? And to strengthen us, we should be asking God to strengthen us so that we could serve him without fear, even in the midst of this world. So this, this idea is where the book of Acts ends, that Paul is in prison in Rome, under house arrest, awaiting a trial before the emperor. <clears throat> but it says the gospel was going forth boldly and unhindered. <clears throat> so Paul, in his life, <clears throat> was able to minister with this kind of fearless boldness in the midst of lots of opposition and hostility. Because ultimately, or as we wait, we have this hope that one day this is the reality. Christ is coming back. His glory will cover the world like the waters cover the sea. His name will be exalted, every knee will bow, and we will be brought into the new heavens and the new earth where we will just serve God. We will do what we're made to do. We will live the way God made us to live for the purpose God made us to live for, honoring him and blessing the world, representing him in all that we do, and we'll do it without fear. That day is coming. It will happen. And I think meditating on that is partly what helped Paul <clears throat> and Christians throughout the ages 
live fearlessly even when there is opposition. What can they, what can they do? Whatever we struggle through or strive against, whatever fears we feel that we pray to overcome, none of them will be full and final because we have a Savior. God has raised up a horn of salvation, a king on the throne of David who is bringing this new heavens and the new earth so that we can live bold lives of righteous holiness, which is what Zechariah says serving the Lord looks like. We serve him without fear in verse 74 and verse 75 in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That doesn't just mean drawing near to the temple. Zechariah might have had that particular image in his mind, but that's an image of what happens every day, all the time. Every moment you live is a moment lived in the presence of God. Everything you say and think and do, you live and think and do before him. We want to walk when God calls us to walk in holiness and righteousness, devotion to him and doing what we should for others. That's what holiness and righteousness means, right? We're devoted to him, we're set apart for him, our lives are lived in obedience to him, faithfulness to him, response to him, so we do what we should to others. We love others, we love ourselves. As God has loved us, we show that love to others. Holiness and righteousness all our days. Because that's how we know peace. The, the churn that happens in modern identity talk and uh, trying to figure out where you're at and what's going on in life. The reason I'm, I'm saying that's partly close is because we are disjointed. We don't live easy lives in this world. You feel like you're not at home when you should be at home. And it's not because, the, 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 the temptation there is to think that it's, not be, it's because the world isn't conforming to me, letting me be me. But the biblical answer, the true answer is it's because I am no longer at home in this world. My heart has been twisted. Our lives have been turned in and away from God and out of joint with the world that God has made. And so the problem is not that we are fine in ourselves and the world needs to change, but that the world was made good and we have twisted, and so we need to know peace with God. We need to be restored to him in wholeness and integrity among him and then with ourselves, which is where Zechariah ends his prayer, right? That's where we're going is to be guided into the way of peace as we live these lives of holiness and righteousness. And what God has done in Christ is work so that we will be able to do that. You can praise God, Christian, that this desire you find in yourself to live that way will come to fruition. The sins we confess every week have been and will continue to be forgiven, but more than that, they will be gone one day, and you will live in total freedom of living the way you should. Never again a pang of guilt in your conscience. Never again a shrinking away in shame for your failure. Never again fearless worship. And that is something we can have now because Christ has already come. He has already cleansed us. He has already raised us with him in the heavenly places. That maybe you're out there thinking, Pastor, I don't really want to be holy and righteous. That's not what I want in my life. That sounds boring and lame and restrictive. Or worse, some people hear and think it's oppressive and actively harmful. And that's why I'm telling you the well of self-discovery is poisoned. Because our natural response is to think holiness and righteousness should be pushed away. It would be bad for us. When in fact, 
the God of life who is life himself is holy and righteous. And it is in all that God is in his self-existence that is holy and good and righteous and does always what is right and, and good that life is found. And the problem is we don't find God naturally compelling. We need his mercy even to see that. And so Zechariah praises God for his mercy that makes any of that possible. Whether it's the Savior that comes, the freedom we have, we need mercy. So we praise God that he sent a Savior. We praise God that we have this hope of fearless service. And then thirdly, we praise God for his mercy that makes it all possible. Uh, in verse 76, he finally comes to John. I like to imagine, who knows, right, that Zechariah is holding his son as he's doing this. I don't, I don't know. But at least, at least in verse 76, he looks at this, this child, the son he's just named John, and says, and you, child, you will be his prophet, prophet of the Most High. Uh, it's the opposite pattern that we saw last week with the Magnificat, right? Mary started with a sense of God's mercy to her, and that broadened into God's mercy to the world. Zechariah's prayer starts with this sense of God's mercy to the world, to all of the people. And he's doing this amazing thing for all of his people, and then it narrows and focuses on this particular act of mercy, the son, the child that he has, and how, how John's life will fit in to God's grand pattern which I just, because I mentioned motherhood last week, this is a, such a great image of what fatherhood is. Um, motherhood is often focused on building community. So Mary's sense of mercy was very personal, knitting us together. Fatherhood is often a sense of like, what are we doing in the world? So moms want to know how are the kids doing, and dads want to know what are the kids up to. <laughs> because, because masculinity, the way Adam was made, was to sort of get out in the world, and form it, and Eve in her glory, feminine glory, was to fill it with, with beauty and, and radiance and life. And so it's not surprising to me, see this pattern all over Scripture, that Zechariah's focus in John is not John's life, but John's work. Here's what you're going to do, boy. God's got this great plan, and you fit in it. You're going to go before God. You'll be his prophet. You'll be known as the prophet of, of the Lord, the Most High, because you'll prepare his ways. And he's talking about God's ways in verse 76. Not yet the Messiah's ways, not yet Jesus' ways. He's preparing the way for God because that's what the expectation was, that God was coming. So that people would know that when God visits, they can have salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. What did we need to do to prepare for the arrival of God and the sending of his king? Well, it wasn't ceremony and it wasn't spit and polish. It wasn't put a good, glorious facade on something that is internally rotten. It was repentance. That's what needed to happen to prepare for uh, Jesus' arrival. That's what needs to happen today to prepare for his second coming. That's what needs to happen in your life so that you can bless God for Jesus. You have to repent. We have to repent. He would announce salvation. God is coming to rescue so that Israel would know is at hand and promise what God sent him to promise. There's pardon for traitors. There's mercy for enemies. There's forgiveness of sins. Because the other way God visits in the Old Testament is in judgment. God visited Sodom and fire fell. When God shows up, he shows up to act. And he either acts to bring redemption or he acts to bring judgment. And for God's visit to mean salvation, God's people would need to be forgiven. They would need 
mercy. Otherwise, his presence just means condemnation. When Jesus returns, for that to be a glorious day for you, you need to be forgiven. Otherwise, his presence means condemnation. And so you see mercy from start to finish. It was the theme in Mary's prayer and song. It's the theme in Zechariah's prayer and song and prophecy here that the king comes to show the mercy promised to the fathers in verse 72. And in the mercy, the tender mercies of our God to bring this forgiveness in verse 78. Mercy from start to finish. If you just read the rest of the Gospels, if you've read them before, you know that God's people were not in a good way. They were not living lives of faithful, loyal love to each other. They were overrun with demons. Their religious elites were preying on the poor. Uh, They were looking out for themselves in, in league with oppressive powers at the expense of the people. They were shepherds who were feeding themselves off their flock. They did not deserve salvation, and neither do we. So the only most motive that God could possibly have had is mercy. His own faithful, steadfast love. At the national level, verse 72 Keeping his promises to Abraham, to Abraham, the covenant he made with Abraham, Abraham to save people, people and the personal love of verse 70. Mercy, mercy for you, for you, for the individual, individual sinners to turn, to turn and repent. And he sent John ahead so that they could be ready. It could have been a surprise inspection. He could have just shown up unannounced. Ready or not? But that's not what he did. And even that's merciful. They sent ahead a forerunner. Messiah's coming. John would say, even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. This is an image for national Israel, national Israel being cut down. But, But if you repent, if you turn, if you confess, and are baptized, washed, and cleansed. You clean up, you can come to the table. And it's mercy. Mercy for pardon and mercy for progress. A forgiven people, ready for the Savior, so that we can bask in his light. Because he gets, what, two verses to John, (laughs) and then he's back on Jesus. In verse 78, the tender mercy of our God not only provided John in the message of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, but it was also these tender mercies, this compassionate heart in God that caused him to send the Savior himself, who is the sunrise. The sun of righteousness would rise. Gerald read that in Malachi 4.2. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. But as for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. That's why in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it's not S-O-N, sun of righteousness. It's S-U-N, sun, because it's Malachi 4 that we're talking about. It's Luke uh, 1 here in Zechariah's prophecy, this sun that rises over the horizon to give light to those who are sitting in darkness. The Savior on David's throne would dawn on his people with his glorious reign, his goodness and his mercy, his faithfulness, and his, even his commands and his instructions and his directions, which would show us the way to peace. And you see that the difference between uh, the image of sitting in darkness, immobilized and fruitless and, and doing nothing, but paralyzed in our sin and our failure and our rebellion, to being guided into the way of peace, restored to walking with God pursuing him, living faithfully for him, the way of holiness and righteousness, wisdom and insight and understanding. what God has done for us in Christ so that we, darkness and death of our own sin, 
the blindness of our rebellion could be given sight and warmth and light. Mercy for progress. And so here's, here's where the, the idea, the identity is so, so close because what God does for us, what he does for his people when the sun of righteousness rises and sheds his light on us with healing in his wings, as we, we are born again, our hearts are changed. So blind people see the light, right? Hearts that are hardened and stone become living, beating hearts again. We respond to God. And so I can say confidently, Christian, right? You want to live in holiness and righteousness. Something in you wants that. I know it's true if you're a Christian because of what God has done by the work of his spirit. He's given not just mercy for pardon, but mercy for progress, to walk in this life, to see holiness and righteousness grow because he's changed us. So, so what God does is tell us, live the way I've made you. But it's not the way you find yourself naturally. It's the way you find yourself remade when Christ and his righteousness shines on you, when the gospel comes, when the spirit works, when you're restored to see God and bless him and glorify him for the mercy that makes it all possible, mercy from start to finish. What he didn't see or didn't say, at least what Zechariah didn't say, is that Jesus would rescue more than Israel. Zechariah is aware that these promises were made to his people, ethnic Israel, what he doesn't yet see, but Luke will spend all of Luke and Acts explaining is the work of this Messiah would graft all the nations into the promises of Abraham. So that when Paul writes to Romans, he can call anyone with faith in Jesus a child of Abraham and an heir of that promise. That we have been grafted in, Romans 11, to the olive tree that are all these promises, the, the blessing and hope that draws its roots from the son of David. And he is our king as well as anyone's as he reigns over heaven and earth now. God work this salvation so that every nation and people can find forgiveness in Christ. So we collect the Lottie Moon. We support the work of the International Mission Board. We pray weekly. Uh, I pray more than maybe weekly in your life for the work of the gospel, not just in our lives, but around the globe, because that is the work that God is doing. He's restoring us in mercy. Us and the world, the fullness of political and social freedom that will come when Jesus returns. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And Zechariah didn't know that in order for that horn to win victory, he would have to be gored by the powers of the world. The way that the Savior would provide our salvation was by his own death in our Nails and spear would pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. And so he blessed the word made flesh. Who reigns in mercy to save us so we can serve without fear. Let's pray. God, we are humbled, awed, amazed. that you raised up your son, not from, but through the grave. You didn't spare him the sufferings that we experience. You piled on more. You piled on our sin on him. And you gave him victory. We look for the day when he comes back. We long to see him face to face. We ache to serve in the fullness of our lives, inside and out, in every way possible, your glory without fear. 
And it thrills us to know that day is coming. Thank you. Blessed be your name. In the name of our Son, of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.